Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. All right, my athletes and my fitness freaks, are you getting enough electrolytes? You kind of need them. They're kind of a big deal. You lose a lot through sweat, but just don't be replacing them with any of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no fillers, no yuck. You need Element. It's not only delicious and wicked convenient, mixes in water super easily, but it also contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams sodium, 200 milligrams potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. You can get a free sample pack. That's eight single-serve packets for free with any Element order when you go to drinkelement.com forward slash Funk, the deal's only available through my unique link to thank you for listening to the show, D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash F-U-N-K. You can try it risk-free. If you'd like to conquer sleep with Ned's dream set, Functional Nutrition Podcast listeners get 15% off with code FUNK. Go to helloned.com forward slash FUNK or enter code FUNK at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D dot com slash F-U-N-K to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. So today I have one of my all-time favorite people, one of my mentors, Jessica Flanagan Brown on the show, and she's been on the show before and she's back and I've, we've both been really excited about this. So I'm so happy to have you here. First of all, thank you. Erin. I love, well, I, first, I love you. I love everything that you're doing. I'm a huge fan. So just thankful for everything you're bringing into the world. Well, thank you for saying that. I'm going to just do a quick intro to you and your work in case somebody's not familiar. Jessica Flanagan Brown is a clinical nutritionist. She's the author of The Loving Diet, and she's been practicing clinical nutrition for 25 years. Listen, when I used to read your bio back in the day, I would say 20. So that's how long you and I have been doing business together. (laughs) Those numbers are tickling their way up. Uh, So in Jessica's clinical practice, she specializes in gut restoration. In her coaching practice, she specializes in disordered eating, especially midlife. She's currently finishing at Stanford University School of Medicine's Applied Compassion Training Program, where she will be a certified compassion teacher and educator. She helps others to get in touch with the healing power of their heart with a practical approach. So first of all, congratulations on finishing up that program. I know that that's been a huge thing for you over the past couple of years. Thank you, Erin. It has very uh, wonderful work. I'm excited to uh, grow it in the world. We're going to definitely get into what specifically that looks like, because I want you to be able to share that with all of the listeners, but let's back up a couple clicks because you were definitely the one to turn me on to using self-compassion as a tool. Um, You have been talking about the power of the heart and the power of our own loving for years. I mean, your book is called The Loving Diet and that was published, was it like 2015? Yes. So quite a while ago, but I'm going to tell you the truth that the concept of loving was like not very fun or like exciting to me. (laughs) self-compassion, like using my own loving versus biohacking, like which one sounds cooler, you know? So it was something I had to overcome. Cause I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That self-compassion thing. Yeah. 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 That loving thing. Okay. But like, what's, what's the protocol? What's the supplement? What's like the cool new thing? What's the gadget instead? Um, so it really took me, I would say years of studying underneath you to like fully grasp how important this stuff is. And I'm 
my goal for today is to con- condense that down the years that I've spent with you into an hour. And we're going to try to convince people why self-compassion is cool today. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll start by saying, I think one of the reasons why it's cool for me, just sort of working both ends, the science end, and then the compassion end is, is that major universities are studying it and educating people in it. So Harvard and Stanford both have big programs now looking at the power of compassion. So I love that if a big university has decided that it's worthy to look at and grow and teach people for health and a better well-being in their life. And now we have there's 30,000 articles now, 30,000 studies about self-compassion that it's worth paying attention to. And your audience is so progressive that this is a very timely place to talk about it because if they haven't heard of compassion and healing, they're going to, because uh, there's a huge body of evidence that's emerging uh, and really people all over the world at major teaching institutions are embracing it. I, I mean, you, you're always one of the reasons that I've looked up to you and, and definitely, you know, hand selected you as like one of my, my tried and true mentors is because you're always at the leading edge of stuff um, and being like, Hey, this is something to pay attention to. Hey, this is something to pay attention to. And I think this is no, no exception to that rule before we, we really get into that. Cause I, I think we're going to kind of talk about self-compassion through the lens of eating disorders and disordered eating, because th- that is on the rise. That's something that you've spent a lot of time with over the past few years uh, working with something people clearly struggle with, but when you kind of first came on the scene and and made more of a public name for yourself, you were really doing it with autoimmunity. And I'm really curious what was going on in your own clinical practice? What was going on in the world? What were you seeing that made, you know, obviously you still work with autoimmune clients and patients and all of that, but what was like the big switch for you to segue more into the eating disorder cohort? When I had my clinical practice focusing on autoimmunity, I had too many people who are eating restrictive diets, have eating disorders, being diagnosed with eating disorders and being diagnosed with orthorexia, which is a form of disordered eating so much that I had to stop what I was doing, reevaluate what the approach that I was taking and admit that I was part of the problem and change course. When you say you are part of the problem, because the the loving diet book, which by the way, I strong recommend. And I know because I know you personally, that part of getting that publishing deal, like you had to kind of like agree to putting a diet in the book and putting recipes. And those recipes were very AIP compliant, I think even low FODMAP compliant. And so is that what you mean by being part of the problem is like perpetuating this narrative that in order to heal, we have to comply with this potentially really restrictive eating plan? Yes, but I was, so yes, I did get the book deal and I had to put in the diet and I didn't want to, but I did. But the other part of it is, is that uh, I quickly saw that people who are studying with any kind of chronic illness, whether it's autoimmunity or heart disease, that there was a part of them that were scared and they were confused and they wanted to get back to normal and feel a sense of control. And we're using diet to do that. It's not that diets are wrong. It's that they were lacking a skill set to be able to not mix the two together. Their emotions were overriding the practicality of the diet because they were scared about what was happening to them. And when you say practicality of diet, it's like, yes, there's validity to this idea that certain foods or certain antigens, food proteins can impact our physical health. Like there's, it's real. It's not, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but when we're not looking at how, you know, you, you talk about using diet as like a safety tool, like a safety mechanism. Like if I comply, then I can protect myself from this illness or even from dying. Like that, that is heavy. That's a big emotion. And so what you're saying is that like, we're we weren't, 
we didn't have the tools to acknowledge that um, or that emotionality involved would kind of override the practicality. Very, very well said. Yes, 100%. So now I'm going back and have gone back in the last five and six years to be able to show, teach, and gently guide people into developing those resources so that they can do any diet they want because a lot of diets are very practical and also be able to comfort, soothe, provide their own safety through their heart, which is uh, easier said than done. And it is the well that doesn't ever run dry. So when we look at anything outside of ourselves to create a sense of safety, it has a time limit. It always runs out, but our hearts don't. So when I saw, oh, when we teach people how to use their own resilience, their own emotional resilience, their own self-compassion, then it doesn't matter. As, you don't get become as emotionally dysregulated no matter what diet you go on. But I was dealing with people who did not have that emotional resilience uh, because they there wasn't any support. And, and up until recently, it hasn't really been taught widely. And I'm hoping to change that. Can you define or give like your working definition of what emotional resilience means? Emotional resilience means that if you get knocked out of the cent, uh, of a center, of your center, you are able to go back to it. To kind of like recalibrate yourself back. Exactly. So self-compassion, compassion is a set of recalibration skills that it's, comes out of the heart. So that is how self-compassion one of the ways that self-compassion is can be used as a healing tool is for that reason. Yes. So self-compassion, if we were to define it, it consists of three components, mindfulness, self-kindness, and common humanity. Those are the three parts that I feel like are important here because mindfulness, for instance, uh, is brilliant and wonderful, uh, but it's and it's one component, for instance, of intuitive eating. But mindfulness in itself, by itself, might not be enough because oftentimes it lacks that self kindness or the compassion. And then common humanity is that we all suffer. Humans on this planet suffer. That is something that is common to all of us. Self kindness means that we all were born with a heart. So you were born with a complete toolkit to be able to hold yourself in any kind of discomfort. You have the ability to do that more than a diet. And then the mindfulness is, is being present with what is, whether that is something that is upsetting or untrue. If we are mindful and we are present with whatever that is, then we have the power to work with it. It's like, um, I think it was Carl Rogers that said the curious paradox, gosh, I'm, I'm just doing this off the old dome piece, but like the curious paradox is that we can't change ourselves until we're, we're like aware with, with what it is or until we like accept things as is. So it's basically like surrendering to what is, is the first step. It's the entry point is like, here, here's what we've got going on. Here's where we are. Yeah. Um, well, what was interesting is, is on my path, I was working with people with restrictive diets who lack that emotional resilience. And then the other end of the spectrum would be like intuitive eating and mindful eating. And I found very quickly that my clients were struggling to do that as well. And that was when I decided to wholeheartedly implement uh, self-compassion, this heart-centered approach to help people. And that maybe it was missing out of both areas that maybe it was missing out of the restrictive diet movement. And maybe it was also missing out of the anti-diet movement and the intuitive eating diet movement. And you've been sounding the alarm a little bit. I mean, you're just kind of like an alarm sounder. I think that's fair to say in your practice, you're like, there's a problem here. Everybody. Uh, hello? Is anyone? A little bit, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And so you've been sounding off on this about intuitive eating for, you know, for a fair amount of time, which is absolutely not to say intuitive eating is bad, wrong, and people shouldn't do it. And it's not getting people help. It, this is, you know, you and I take a very different stance than a lot of people in healthcare, because a lot of people in healthcare or paradigms in healthcare is like one way is bad. One way is good. One way is wrong. One way is right. And we're like, Hey, there's a gray area that exists. Like maybe we should spend some time here. And I think the intention, when we were both talking about what we should do on this show, both of our intention, it kind of came back to, we want people to walk away from this conversation feeling like, not like less tools are available to them, but more tools are available to them. Um, And many of these tools are available to you inside of you right now. And you can take these tools into multiple approaches, lots of different approaches. So you're saying that you recognized that, Hey, we have this diet industry and we have, and, you know, we could even argue that some of the restrictive therapeutic healing diets can fall into this diet industry, which is like restrict as a way to heal. And then we have this anti-diet world, which sometimes gets lumped in with health at every size and intuitive eating. And it's like these two opposing paradigms. And you're like, wait a second, they're both missing this one thing, which is this self-compassion piece. Self-compassion and introceptive awareness, both, they're both missing that. In fact, the more we can increase our introceptive awareness, and I'll define that definition or tell everybody the definition in a second, they're both missing this piece. And that is what I think is going to be the next wave of healing that nutrition is going to experience, which is really exciting because it means you can't make a wrong decision. Wow. (laughs) I mean, who just felt that? And like, I felt that like ricochet throughout me. You can't make a wrong decision. Listen, I just posted like a silly reels. I've just blended up some berries in some coconut milk in a food processor. It's like a 30 second video. I'm like, yum. And you like the comments already, you know, less than 24 hours later, it's like, is this safe for candida diet? And somebody's swooping in and be like, this isn't safe for candida diet, but medical medium says this, but like, it's like bonkers. So there is very much so this omnipresent belief when it comes to food, diet, and healing that there's one right way and we have to find it. And if we just work hard enough. And if we just search hard enough, and if we just ask enough questions, and if we just follow enough accounts, and if we just listen to enough gurus, and if we just read enough books, we will eventually find that one right way. And what you just said is the exact opposite of this, which is. You are the right way. And we're going to continue to be bombarded with those messages until we believe our hearts. So it's not a matter of even saying, I'm just going to wait until I'm not hearing those messages. They're going to continue. They're going to transform. They're going to evolve and grow. We're going to keep hearing the messages about the way to get saved. Compassion and self-compassion is you, your heart is not only you were born with it, but it was built to do this. And so no matter what you choose, it will just be one way of building knowledge inside of yourself about what works for you. And that is the path of, that's the path for people who are exhausted, feel good on. I'm exhausted looking for the right way. Uh, And so what happens is, is diet becomes just a practical thing that you can choose and change and make a decision about in real time. But the real resilience, which is I'm never off the path is inside of us. And that's the part that I love about this work and why big universities are studying it. But we are not living in a culture that supports it because people can't make money on this. Oh, dear. (laughs) Because it's really leveraging something that's already complete and built inside of you. But we also are experiencing more things in our society and our culture that make it harder to believe that that's true. I mean, when we look at what has happened to people's nervous systems since the pandemic, anxiety and depression up 25%. 
on the planet. World Health Organization just reported that on the planet. That's a big deal. And when we look at eating disorders in women in menopause up 33%, that now the estimation is three out of every four women suffer from disordered eating. We start looking at these statistics, it it almost seems like it's like, wow, can I trust that there's something inside of me that will help me? Yes, we can. The lack of self-trust is a, like a plumb line that runs throughout. And I see it show up in so many different places. When I'm talking to people about their businesses, when I'm talking to people about how they show up on social media, when I'm talking to people about how they set boundaries with their family, when I'm talking to people about how they heal, when I'm talking to people, what diet they choose, it's just keeps coming back to this deep seated lack of trust in oneself. And so if you're telling me and all of us that our hearts hold the answer, and yet we fundamentally do not trust ourselves, what do we do with that? Well, I just did a study and so my, my program is called transformational eating. It's a six week self-compassion program. And while I was at Stanford, everybody was required to develop and execute a, a program in compassion. Well, I did, and I did a study on it. And in my group, in my study group, self-trust, Aaron went up 60%. Six zero? Six zero. 60% because trust, body trust and self-trust were the, to me, I agree with you. They're the most important things. And I was like, wow, it's like crickets out there when you're like, what's the first thing I do to trust myself. Uh, and when I looked at my data, I was like, wow, this is, th- this is why I'm getting this out there. So it's like Janine Roth, who I'm sure you're familiar with her work because she's been doing, you know, this whole, uh, eating thing for a long time. In yeah. one of her books, Women, Food, and God, she said, um, telling somebody to trust themselves around food is like throwing them to the wolves. Like, how do I trust the, the thing that inside of me that is so fundamentally wrong? How can I trust that? Step-by-step. Step. <laughs> uh, you know, one kind thought and then another kind thought. So when we look at what we, what's the first thing that we can do, one is, is we might want to look at some of the background about what's missing. And that's really helpful. And that's where that proceptive awareness comes in. Um, So we can practice self-compassion. And then we can also look at introceptive awareness when we look at what is the first thing that we can do to start trusting ourselves. Let me just say too, um, introceptive awareness is the ability for you to sense and process the signals in your body. And we know because it's been studied now for almost two decades, which is relatively new in the field of psychology, but we know that when we can learn how to sense and process signals in our body, then we feel better emotionally and physically. So that's the first thing. And and we know that people who have disordered eating has already been shown in science. People who have eating disorders and disordered eating have less of a sense of their body. So they can't sink down into their bodies. Why? A lot of times we know now that it's trauma. We, We for sure know that it's a high ACE score. So these are all the things that have been shown in studies. People who have eating disorders and disordered eating have a higher ACE score and adverse childhood experience score than the general population. We also know that people with disordered eating and eating disorders. And when we look at like three out of every four women have disordered eating, we're talking about a lot of people, which is why I do believe it's hard for a lot of people to be able to intuitively and mindfully eat. So when we look at, wow, there's a lot of people who are missing the ability to be able to sense and process signals in the body so that they can um, have emotional regulation so that they can feel better emotionally and physically. Introceptive awareness is necessary for accurate body image. Again, all in published research. We're like, and so my first thought was, 
How do we get people to get more introceptive awareness? It turns out that intuitive eating doesn't inherently increase people's introceptive awareness, but it is a part of the guidelines of intuitive eating. And so what I went into my program and my study asking was, can self-compassion increase introceptive awareness in people with eating disorders and disordered eating so that they can trust the signs and trust the signals coming out of their body and be able to trust their heart and their own compassion? That was the question that I had. And the answer is yes, according to my study. So 60% increase in self-trust and overall was a 30% increase in introceptive awareness overall and a 30% increase in self-compassion scores. And this is by doing a few things. One is, is to be present with what it was, the stories that everybody has about themselves that may or may not be true. What happened to you? Who's your inner eater? What happened to your inner eater? And what is your inner eater belief? And let's not focus on trying to change what you believe or what your inner eater believes, but let's focus on what would it be like? What kind of experience would you have if you just acknowledge that your inner eater had an experience and it believes something it needed to, to feel safe and survive? And that really is the money the money sentence, I think, of how do we do this work? We, that this is, I wanted to bring up this concept of inner eater on this, in this conversation, but I, I think that so much of what you just said probably offers listeners a collective sigh of relief because there's just this idea that it's like, just like for our physicality, our physical body in terms of interoception, it's just like, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. And we're like, but why, why can't we do that? And if we're lacking this ability to self-assess what our body is communicating with us, then gosh, that really becomes a lot harder. And I just think about how many of us have this adversarial relationships with our body because they haven't historically been a safe place to occupy, depending on what has been done to them in the past what has been done to them by other people, by our own self? Like, where are we shooting ourselves in our hearts with our own arrows? When you talked about the self-compassion, part of that is mindfulness, but part of that is self uh, self-kindness. Like I think back, there was years and years and years where I was practicing mindfulness practices. I was doing it. I was mindful, but I was mindfully really being a shithead to myself. I was mindfully really being unkind to myself. The mindfulness being present with what is didn't change my inner dialogue. It didn't change the story that I was telling about myself, about my place in this world, about my body. None of that changed. Mindfulness didn't change that. And so if we don't have the ability, if we're not taught how to change our inner dialogue and to change our stories from one of harshness to one of kindness, I don't know how much we can really, really change. And I I think about Carolyn Miss, who I know you're a huge fan of, she talks about this inner healer. Carolyn Miss has been talking about this since like the late seventies, early eighties, right? So she's, she's like a mama bear in the mind body medicine field. And she talks about using our own intuition, our own internal compass, our own inner guidance system to help us understand the messages that our bodies are communicating with us. And that's a beautiful thing. If we can access that, that's, that is wonderful. But where does that lead us? You know, like, how do you do it? How do you take that information? Yeah. How do you take that data and incorporate it into choice, incorporate it into new action? And with your transformational eating program, you did introduce me to this concept of inner eater. And so I would, I'm curious how, inner eater is different than intuitive eating. And we're going to quickly interrupt this discussion to shout out one of our show sponsors. As a reminder, the support of our sponsors is what allows the Functional Nutrition Podcast to continue to pump out new content to you. So we always thank them. We hope that you support them too. 
Okay, I want to talk to you about Moringa, which is a plant that can give us a green powder. And I've known the benefits for Moringa for a while. It has a lot of protein, vitamin A, potassium, calcium, vitamin C, iron. It's a pretty powerful and potent little plant. I couldn't get past the taste. I would buy bags of it, just not really know what to do with it. I love me some like dirt flavor. I'll drink matcha tea all day long, but the Moringa, I was like, it's kind of weird. The good news is that you can get all the benefits of Moringa without like the weird taste in Organifi's green juice. So you can go with their original blend, which has kind of a minty taste or with their brand new green juice, crisp apple blend, which tastes mm, just like apples. Organifi's green juice also has other green superfoods like spirulina and chlorella, as well as ashwagandha, a really nice adaptogenic herb that helps to balance out cortisol levels in the body. If you want to try some, and I think you should, head to Organifi.com forward slash funk. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash funk to save 20% off of your order. All right, back to the show. Well, intuitive eating stops looking at foods are good or bad. And instead you listen to your body and what, and you eat what feels right. That's the definition of intuitive eating, right? Uh, When you, when we look at the inner eater, we want to know what is it that you believe and what happened to you? That's, that is going beyond listening to your body and being present with the experience that your inner eater had. So you can't listen to your body if you've been traumatized, because we know that trauma skews the signals for you to be able, for the brain to be able to interpret signals from the body because introceptive awareness is I'm full. So I'm going to stop eating. We have to both look at what skews that messaging and how do we repair it? Well, one is, is we can start working with someone who is trauma informed and, and start looking at trauma always makes us believe something about ourselves for the most part, that isn't true. It's a turning away from who we are. But the other part of this is, is that our mind holds our thoughts and our body holds our feelings. And there are some very practical ways that we can start opening up that line of communication because trauma often means that that line of communication is unsafe and not to be trusted because it might bring on more hurt. For instance, if you were looking at like having a parent who, uh, who was abandoning you or you were getting physical abuse. So when we start looking at ways that we can bridge the thoughts in the mind and the feelings in the body, then we, there's a whole host of things that will start that line of communication, breathing, mindful breathing, yoga, somatic experiencing, EMDR, tapping, NLP, self-compassion. There are a host of things that people can start to practice that will create this bridge. Intuitive eating does not do that because it is about looking at food, not looking at foods as good or bad. So that's cool. Creating neutrality around foods. Yes, we want that. That's so awesome. And also it looks, it focuses on listening to your body and eating what feels right. Well, oftentimes, if you have a diagnosis with cancer or MS or lupus, um, you are going to eat what feels right is going to be really confusing about what's going to keep you safe. And so what I'm saying is, is that there's a whole area where we can take a few steps back and look at each person's communication system that then will allow you to properly interpret those signals and those cues. So you know what fullness really feels like. But if you've been traumatized, you have a high ACE score, you have a heart rate variability that isn't working well, or you have like a a cortisol response that's interrupting all of these signals and cues, it makes it a lot more challenging. And so people feel like they're failing at mindful eating and intuitive eating. That makes sense. It makes perfect sense. It, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Can you give us a real world example of what, um, obviously not naming names, but of like a client that you've worked with in the past, some things that you've uncovered about their inner eater. So we can kind of anchor in this concept a little bit more with like a real world experience. Well, there's, 
one comes to mind um, of an older woman that was adopted. She was adopted as a very young child and she felt for most of her life that she didn't, she was unlovable because she was adopted. And because of that, she used eating to compensate for that belief that she was unlovable and someone did not want her. So she kept trying to eat healthy and it wasn't working because she never got down to that belief that was driving all of it. I have another example of a woman that I work with whose genetics is her, her natural set point of her genetics makes her body bigger than she's comfortable. And she's really resentful and she feels like she got made wrong, which is very hard for her. And so she keeps uh, um, rebelling against that she got made wrong by going on a lot of diets and extreme exercise regimes to diet her way back into a body she wants to be in. But that's her not her natural set point. Her natural set point would involve her sort of accepting it. And there's a lot of stress and grief that goes along with that. But she's resentful to what it's going to take in order to be in the body she prefers. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So we get this uh, example of where she worked to intuitively eat and eat when she's stop eating when she's really full and eat when she's really hungry, her, she's going to be very upset with what her natural body is. That makes a lot of sense. And so there's still this sort of like, even if she were to do the intuitive eating, which is to eat when I'm hungry, stop when I'm full, um, sort of bastardizing that a little bit, but you know, like, you know, in a, to make it like overly simplified, there's still this self-flagellation energy because at the end of the day, she is resisting like that, the person that she is, the way that she was built, that she's still running that same belief. So she can do the practice of intuitive eating, but that doesn't change the fundamental belief of I was built wrong. I was exactly. And so she had, if she fully embraced the way that she was built, there would be a lot of pain. And that pain is part, being with that pain is part of self-compassion, making room for, I'm so sad. It's not different. I really want it to be different. I'm so upset with what this reality is. That part of self-compassion is acknowledging that there's suffering there that, you know, and that when we are with the suffering, we can move through it and come to a different place. Oh my God. So that's the third piece of this common humanity, which is there is suffering. And we are so taught to turn away from the pain, turn away from the pain, turn away from the pain. We pathologize the pain. Pain is bad. Pain is wrong. And what I'm hearing you say is that really what we need to learn to do is find ways to resource ourselves, to give ourselves space to actually sit with the pain. And believe that we can. I mean, in my hardest moments, I didn't believe that I could be with suffering. I mean, big suffering, like your whole entire, like you get a cancer diagnosis that creates a lot of suffering. What now? What am I going to die? What does this mean? Do I have to get surgery? So the, one of the pieces about self-compassion is using this practicing, experiencing inside of yourself that you can actually be with all the suffering that you're being honest about facing finally. And, you know, there's no easy way to do this, Aaron, you know, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I worked with teachers. I remember my teacher saying, you're the one who has to believe that you're going to wash up on dry shore. Cause I didn't, I believed I'd get consumed and I would go crazy and it was too much. 
and self-compassion believes I can hold this, even if I'm struggling, even if I'm in last place, even if I cry every day, even if I fall apart every day, I still can hold this suffering. And then to pull in that emotional resiliency piece, like trusting ourselves to be like, and I can sit with myself during this hard time. It's not going to make me come undone. And I can still recalibrate back to center. Even if I can't do it right now, I'm open to the idea that there's a potential that I can do this. Yes. Open to the idea that there's a potential I can do this. Just like a whisper of a potential of an opportunity. Um, Just like your best friend would say too. Like I have a best friend who says, has said to me since I was 16 years old, you're going to be okay. And I, there were so many times, Erin, I didn't believe I was going to be okay, but she did. And that's a way to practice self-compassion is to imagine what the person who you love the most would say, you know what, it's going to be okay. You can get through this. You can do this because when someone you love says that to you, it actually elicits a neurochemical response inside of you. And oftentimes when we start practicing self-compassion, we imagine what we would feel like if someone we trust and that we care about says that to us. Oftentimes that's the first way to start practicing self-compassion is to imagine how it feels in our body when someone extends that kind of kindness to us. And then we start doing it on our own. It's just so wild because we have the capability of extending kindness. We do it all day long to so many people in our lives. And yet we really struggle with turning that inward. (laughs) Yeah, we don't, there's no uh, payoff right? There's no, cause I was like, I was saying it's not, there's not money in it because you're literally just utilizing a tool, a toolkit that's already built inside of you that doesn't ever run out. And it is not popular because we want the fast, easy way, but you know, I take the fast, easy way until it doesn't work. And then I get tired and then I complain and then I trust myself. So, I mean, I don't want anyone to get the idea that you know, this is easy for me either. It's almost always, I complain every single time I have to be kind to myself. I just (laughs) stop judging my complainer. (laughs) Oh, here we go here. Let's do this. Me, you, and the complainer. (laughs) So listen, you've, you've said the inner eater, you've said the complainer. I'm sure you've said something else. This is something that I've been thinking a lot about, and I don't, I haven't like sat with it enough to like really formulate a strong thesis. It's like, all up in my journal, like pages and pages of this. In spirituality, I feel like there is this big like call to arms to outgrow and kill off the former versions of our, like we have to let the old versions of ourselves die in order to step into our true potential of who we're supposed to become. And I'm like, that fucking sounds scary. Like, That does not create safety in me. If I'm like every past version of myself must die, like in the future, right now, I am going to be a past version of it. Does that mean I have to die too? It's like such self-annihilation energy. And through my work with you, one of the biggest takeaways that I've, you know, we've been working together in so many different capacities for so, for so many years, you have taught me how to sit with myself, how to sit with different versions of myself, how to sit with versions of myself or pieces of myself that I have shamed, that I have been told bad, that I've turned away from, um, inner child, all sorts of different aspects of myself, like actually sit with them, even if I don't like them, even if I'm not proud of them, rather than to like swoop in and try to like kill them off. And I just don't know how, I don't know how trying to kill off versions of ourselves. It's how trying to self annihilate. I don't know how that can ever lead to true healing. Yeah, it can't, but it will make you really tired in the process. (laughs) 
Yeah. Because self-compassion is really the process of remembering your wholeness instead of trying to go outside of yourself to find your wholeness. And this is self, I I say self-compassion is the best inner parenting tool we have. It really helps us touch our own loving to the places inside of ourselves that believe something about us and our inherent worth and goodness that are not true. And that is healing. And we know that this works because self-compassion has been studied for, for uh, in so, so much now that it increases your body image. It improves your body image. It increases motivation. It helps balance neurochemicals. It helps the immune system. Professional athletes that practice self-compassion perform better in competitions. So we're looking at it from kind of both ways. One is that it does have a sort of a spiritual woo-woo component. But the other thing is, is we know that it works because it's been studied and it really is not fluff. I mean, there is no one pill, pharmaceutical medication or supplement that can do all the things that you just said. There's no supplement. Yeah, exactly. Now it will make supplements work better. Potentially it will. And it will, what it will also do is say, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to try a diet and not judge myself. (laughs) Cause this is the other thing that when we look at what are things that will get us caught as we move forward with looking at, Oh, maybe I want to try something that could be called a diet because I feel motivated to don't judge yourself. If you don't judge yourself, then you experience the freedom of being able to choose and learn and grow. When we are experiencing shame, so shame would be, why did I do that? Why did I try that diet? I just messed up. You see, you're no good. That kind of shame energy blocks wisdom. So when we don't judge ourselves, then we're free to make decisions and harness those pearls of wisdom and move forward. And that was what Caroline Mace talks about and Janine Roth talks about as well. And now we're entering into a new phase of looking at, for instance, Janine Roth's work, which are really is science-backed and really comprehensive. And you get to decide how you wanna do it and you're not doing it wrong. Because every time we, even if we stumble, we learn something. And judgment is the piece that's optional and self-compassion when we're practicing it helps us, uh, even when we do judge ourselves, to move on past it and just forgive ourselves. There is, I would say the, if there, I could summarize like the secret to my success, um, whether that's like career success, health success, whatever it is, is reframing failure. Like there is no failure. Everything is a learning opportunity, even when it sucks, even when it takes you down, even when it knocks you out cold, you get back up. And if you allow yourself to ask like, what, what did I learn from this way easier said than done way easier said than done, but Holy smokes. It just, there's such freedom in recognizing that like, there's no such thing as like true failure. It's all here for our growth and our own evolution. And if you can really believe that it it is a very liberating um, belief. Yes. Yeah. And imposter syndrome, which I feel like is closely aligned with that failure and being in the Stanford training. um, There is, I mean, the people who are in this training program are leaders of companies and universities. And I was like blown away and all seems like everybody has imposter syndrome. So there's that piece too, which is, it's just part of the gig. The judgment piece is optional. And the more we engage with our heart to both acknowledge that it's part of the process and be kind to ourselves while we're sorting it out, uh, and then forgive ourselves when we do trap ourselves, then we do we move on. That's called emotional resilience. So I know we're running out of time because you have a client that you need to get to. And I, I want to make sure that we give people the appropriate resources on where to find more of your work and learn a little bit more about what you're doing. But before we do that, these are, these are the worst type of questions. Like I hate when people ask me these kind of questions, I'm going to do it to you anyway. If okay. you could in, in three easy steps, no, if you could, if somebody's like, okay, this is a new conversation. This is something I haven't tried before. This is something I want to do. 
what is the path to get started on practicing self-compassion? One is to just be curious about what it is. And then the second thing is, is uh, what do I feel in my body if I imagine the person that deeply cares about me, letting me off the hook and saying, we all mess up, you're gonna be okay. I believe in you and you are a wonderful human being. And then acknowledge what you feel in your body when you just imagine that happening. That's self-compassion. That's first, that's a, a practice that you can deepen every day of your life. And it's, that's available, but we can do it, right? We have the tools to do it. We can extend our loving. Like if you're like, I don't know if I can do that. I think look for evidence that you can, like you've extended your loving to your best friend, to your parents, to your kiddos, to whomever, your pets, like, right. There's, there is, if you scan your life, there is evidence that you can do this. And now it's just practicing, putting that back inward to you. Practice and uh, our breath is an incredible mover to facilitate this practice. So as you practice, just imagining this and then feeling it, use your breath, include it, include it in the process. So with that said, if somebody's like, cool, and also maybe I need a little bit of help with this. <laughs> <laughs> you Can you tell us more about transformational eating and other projects that you've got going and ways people can connect with you? Well, my website's thelovingdiet.com. So is my Instagram. Um, and this is a project that I'm going to continue and grow. And it's what I did my Stanford Compassion Project on called Transformational Eating. It's a six-week online class that is really customized to struggling and struggles around eating eating disorders or disordered eating or orthorexia. It's a very specialized program um, that teaches you how to customize it in a way that works for you. So I did a study, which now shows that it works. I'm going to be publishing that study next. Uh, and I'd love to have people join the program. I keep my groups really small so that there's lots of interaction and support. Um, I'm have a, a so starting January, I'll start some new groups. And then I also work one-on-one -on -one too. Congratulations on the, uh, the study. That's so exciting. That's like goals. Um, and I will say, I'll throw this out there. I did the transformational eating certification with you when it was like right in its fledgling stages. Like you were just building this out. This was before you were big time with Stanford even. And I, it was phenomenal. I know that, I know there was the, the beginning, it, it's not what it is today, but even just the beginning of it was absolutely phenomenal. So I personally would recommend it would beyond a shadow of a doubt. So I would absolutely, we'll link all of that up in the show notes for you, of course, or for listeners, of course. Um, but, but strong recommend, this is something that you haven't done before. You haven't seen before you, it hasn't been mapped out in this way. So it's, I can guarantee it. You know, people are, like you said, people are tired. People are exhausted. People are like, I have tried it all. And I will tell you, like, you haven't tried this yet. No, I was asked by uh, the Stanford Eating Disorder Department to come talk about it uh, because it is so new. And while a lot of places practice mindful eating and, and intuitive eating, self-compassion, increasing introceptive awareness has not been studied. And I really believe that this is going to be a modality that is going to be widely used as a source of healing because it's, we're all tired and we need programs for people who don't want to get more tired and believe in themselves and grow a resource that's already inside of them. Jessica, thank you so much for the work that you do and for taking the time to come speak with me today. Um, it's such an honor to have you back on the show. I appreciate you. Thanks, Aaron. And thanks for the work you're doing. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you got something from today's show, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.